At First Baptist Church, our mission is to follow our Lord Jesus Christ and to lead all others to a joyful life with Him. Our hope is that you will encounter Jesus Christ in such a way that you will have joyful news to go and tell. If you'll turn in your worship folder or in your Bible and you'll find Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. It's our reverse text for today. And if you're able and you have that in your Bible or bulletin, I'm asking you to stand in reverence for God's Word. We'll read this together. Ready? Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers, Do not bother me. The door So I say to you, ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. So let me start with a disclaimer. This is a tricky passage. When I began to do study and, and just preparation, the first book I found commentary on this passage was a book called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And so you read other commentators and they say, it's tricky, it's, it's complicated, There's, there, it, this need, you need to be careful as you work through this passage and Jesus' answer in this, in this parable especially. And so what makes it even more challenging for us today is that we're kind of just dropped in the middle of Jesus' teaching without any context or background information, those first four verses, which is needed and necessary uh, to, to understand and interpret and, and apply the rest of the parts of Luke 11. And so we'll see their impact throughout this chapter. But before we do, before we get to our text, I want to go back and cover and just highlight those first four verses and kind of begin to pull the context and background in for us, okay? So in verse 1, we get a glimpse into the regular pattern and routine life of Jesus. We're told that Jesus is away praying in a certain place. Truth be told, this is normal. Life as usual for Jesus. Jesus was always praying, and the disciples were well aware of it. Often they saw it. Sometimes they heard it. You look through the scriptures, all the gospel writers record prayers of Jesus or mention moments when he would slip away to pray. In the mornings, before big decisions. In the evening, he pulled all-nighters. Big events, healings, miracles, teaching. 
What Jesus is doing in this first verse, and, and really through his, through his life, is he's setting an example of a prayer life for the disciples. I think this example had a couple of effects on them, and maybe for us today. The first is curiosity. Can, can you just imagine what might be going through their minds? What, what does he say for so long? How does he talk? He's not just praying the regular prayers that we're supposed to pray. There's more. There's depth. There's something else there that's going on. How does he not run out of words? And curiosity often causes discomfort. You can hear it imagine it. Gee, I, I run out of words after a few minutes when I pray. I don't pray as often as he does. I don't have the same desire to pray as he does. But Jesus knew that his example was doing that. And one of the things that I think we need to be keenly aware of is Jesus is never uncomfortable with curiosity or discomfort, especially ours. Because those things usually bring about questions or they pique interest. And then he would provide answers. And that's what's happening in verse 1. Now, before we move through the passage, those of you that have known me for a long time know that I spent 20 years here as a youth pastor. And so anytime that I would teach God's Word to teenagers, they would always allow me the privilege to just kind of poke ask questions, just kind of see how, how everybody's doing, what they're thinking, what they're feeling. So I want, I want to do that. And this, it's going to be rhetorical, so it'll be painless. But I do, I do want to ask a question. I do want you to consider this, this question. This morning, right now, how do you feel about your prayer life? How do you feel about your prayer life? One of the things I enjoyed with teenagers as well is I could be very vulnerable and so, I'm going to do that with you guys too. If you're like me, sometimes I feel like I'm at a loss for words. Sometimes I feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over. My prayer life is a routine or it's a, it's a rut. Sometimes my prayer life is not the priority it should be. I'm dissatisfied. Sometimes I get frustrated with my prayer life. But I know in my heart I, I'm sincerely hungry to learn, and I have a desire to grow, but it's not as deep as I want. It's not happening as fast as I would like. Does anybody else feel that way, or is it just me? It's rhetorical. <laughs> if you do, I think we are in good company this morning, because I think that's exactly what led the disciples to ask that question in verse 1. That example prompted the question or the request, Lord, teach us to pray. And what follows the rest of chapter 11 is Jesus' answer. And it comes in several parts. First, there's a prayer. Then there's a parable. Then there's an explanation. And then there's a story. So I want to start where Jesus starts in his answer with the prayer. Luke uh, 11, 2 through 4. It's Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. The one we're more familiar with is in Matthew chapter 6. It's a little more eloquent. It's a little longer. But the parts are all there. If, we, if you read those verses, it would be and seem very, very familiar to you. And so Luke does a great job of, of keeping that prayer just as, as we would remember it and want it to be. Jesus says, when you pray, say this, 
But I really think what Jesus is doing here is he's presenting that Lord's Prayer. Actually, it's the model prayer. I think he's presenting it as a lens or a framework to pray, to think, to work, to do theology. And so these four, first four verses are huge, and they're very, very important. I think, I think they're almost like reading glasses, this, this, this prayer, where, you, you know, you, whatever's happening on the page doesn't make sense, but you put those glasses on, and all of a sudden things get clear. You see things that you didn't see before. You understand. And so Jesus uses this as a lens to look through as we're praying, and that's why he starts with that that prayer. These words are given to guide and give us freedom to shape our own thoughts and prayers. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying these exact words. In fact, we do that here at First Baptist all the time. And it's beautiful, it's helpful, it's meaningful, and it's worshipful. I love it when we do that. But it's a guide, it's a lens. And so as we look through this passage, one of the things that I want to do is I'll point out Put, put, the, put the lenses on. Look through the lens. If you look through the lens, all of a sudden these other scripture verses will become clearer and, and doable. Okay? If I was going to sum up that prayer, just a, a, a short lens, a little summary statement of what we need to do and think, it would be a sovereign and loving God who's building His kingdom and our awareness of our weakness as we interact with Him and others. The second part of Jesus' answer is in verses 5-8. through It's the parable, part of the parable we read. We've done that, so I'm not going to read it again, but I want to review it and comment on it. The parable is about three men. Man 3 pays an unexpected visit to his friend, Man 2, very late at night. We know this because Jesus says Man 2 goes to his friend, Man 1, at midnight and asks for three loaves. Is that clear? (laughs) What helps us understand the tension and the dilemma, right now there's none for us, but there was. So what helps us is understanding the customs and the culture of those days. First it was midnight. Midnight wasn't the time when things were winding down. Midnight was the time that, that things were already shut off and had been shut off for hours. It was the middle of the night. It wasn't early, late evening. It was, it was midnight. It was game over. It was lights out. The doors closed, Jesus said. That's an indication for the people in that home, we would just assume you not bother us. And so that's exactly what's, what's happening. Uh, second, hospitality was regarded as a sacred duty. Man number two is caught in the middle. He now has a guest which demands that he generously and lavishly provide food, shelter, and so forth. The visit was unexpected, so man two had no bread or food to give the man. Man two is in crisis mode. He knows, even as the thought crosses his mind, he knows what could happen, what will happen. That if he goes to man one's house, in fact, he's going to wake up man one and man one's family, because they're all in bed together. It's a one-room kind of operation. It's, it's, they're all together. They're close. One wakes up, one rolls over, the whole lot gets up. Not only that, there's probably animals in there with them. I mean, everything is, they really roll up the sidewalks. Everything is in there, compact. Animals are safe, secure, so they can't run off, run away. And it's into that ruckus 
that the man says, this is where I'm going to find help. So Jesus asked the disciples the question, okay guys, which of you would be bold enough to do that, to set off that firestorm? Well, here's where Jesus' story gets interesting. After man one's initial, uh, no, leave us alone, reaction, man two gets what he asked for. Why? How? Well, Jesus says, not because of their friendship, but because of man two's persistence that man one gets up and gives man two as much as he needs. Persistence. It was a big deal to go, and it was a bold demand to make. And I think that persistence is Jesus' point in this parable. And there's several reasons I want to give you for that. I think, I think, number one, in these verses, Jesus is answering the request of one of the disciples. Okay, this is not, the question wasn't, how does God receive prayer? The question was, how do we pray? How do we go to God? And Jesus said, with persistence. It's about man number two. Second, it's a parable. If this were an allegory, all, every feature of the story would correspond to a spiritual truth. And we know instantly the actions and attitudes of man one don't allow any kind of a good comparison. It, that, that, that just breaks down. But a parable is a story of, or an illustration that has one spiritual truth. The last reason, I think, is Jesus uses verses 9 and 10 to expound on just the one point. Persistence. And then in, and so in, 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 in verse, verse 8, he says, so, or verse 9, he says, so you're getting it. So I say to you. It's, it's a clause that means now that you're understanding, you're wrapping your mind around the tension and the persistence and what that means and looks like, I'm going to unpack this even more for you. And so he does that with three verbs. Ask, seek, knock. Now in the English, it seemed very simple and straightforward, but there's a huge difference in the Greek. These verbs are in the present active imperative tense. Okay? Sounds fancy, doesn't it? That means it's a command or a directive that is expected to be followed not once, but as an ongoing process. When the doctor tells you not to eat red meat, that doesn't mean you have chicken for lunch and then you go back to your normal diet. That's not what he's telling you. That's, that's what he's saying. From now on, no red meat, and no red meat, and no red meat, and no red meat. That, your lifestyle just changed. And that's what that feels like. That's what it looks like. And so, if you kind of put that back together, it says, ask, and keep on asking, seek, and keep on seeking, knock, and keep on knocking. So, let's look at these words, ask. There, there's a humility when you're asking, there, but it involves more than that. To ask means you have an engaged mind. You have a focused will. A great example would be a teenager that's riding back from DPS with, with their parent. The parent's driving, and the teenager just passed the driving test. And on the way home, they're talking about how mean the instructor was, and how they almost didn't make it, and all the things that, that you talk about. But when they get home, what's the first question that teenager is going to ask the parent? Car keys, please. Focused will. Determined. 
She knew that the question was coming for a long, long time. She was asking. The man did too. Three loaves, please. Seeking involves a little, little more, uh, a little more investment. It, it involves action. It, it means you're willing to uh, uh, help solve the problem, be part of the answer, the objective of finding or obtaining something. I, I think about men at the grocery store. When you, when you bump into a man at the grocery store and he's with his wife, first of all, but his wife's not there, he's going to have this look on his face. And you say, hey, what are you, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm, I'm trying to find my wife. Well, no, you're not, because you're standing there. You're not doing anything. Okay, now the Scott Lane plan, when I get separated from Christy in the grocery store, I make a beeline to either the front or the back of the grocery store, and I walk as fast as I can across, and I shoot down every aisle to see where she's at so I can find her. That's seeking. I, there's action involved. There's intent of finding involved. Knocking requires a little bit of perseverance. So if I do this, that's not a knock. That's just noise. If I'm sitting at the house watching TV, Christy and I are doing that, and we hear, I'm going to look at her and say, did something fall? Did, uh, did you drop something? Did a bird fly into the window? What, what was that? A knock is more than one time. Keep on knocking. And so there's this continuing action. There's this perseverance. Man number two woke man number one up. It's implied that man number two just did not stop. Jesus says, that's it. That's the way I'm teaching you to pray, with boldness, with persistence. Jesus is saying, pray like man number two. Be bold when you talk to God. Continually, shamelessly. That sentiment's not just here in this teaching, this part of the sentiment. It's elsewhere in Scripture. We, we read it the other, a few weeks ago in Ephesians. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Always keep on praying. Let your requests be made known to God. Pray without ceasing. We, we, we get that. But now here's where we have to be clear and careful because the promises of Jesus are also there in verses 9 and 10. Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. And he repeats those promises again in verse 10, but he widens the scope. First he was talking to the disciples, and then he says, everyone, anyone can ask, and it will be opened. Oh my goodness, chaos is coming. All these things are happening. And it seems to be that Jesus is encouraging persistence in which, in turn, directly lead to getting our desired, our desired results. It seems that he's teaching that. Now, if you think this is a one-off or we're reading the story wrong, go look at Luke chapter 18 because he has another parable about the persistent widow that says the same thing. Listen to how he wraps up that parable. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect to cry for him day and night? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. Same sentiment. James says, you have not because you ask not. Persistence. So, keep asking till I get what I want? It seems illogical and disrespectful at the least, but that's what Jesus seems 
to be saying should be our approach in prayer. Wait, what? Did he, what? So or do we believe by persistent prayer that we can manipulate God into giving us what we want and keep him from giving us what we don't want? That we will receive anything and everything we ask for if only we are persistent? Based on what we read in the entirety of the scriptures in our own life experience, we have to say the answer to that co- those questions are no, no. But Jesus is clearly teaching that we can and should ask, seek, and knock continually, persistently, and that there's somehow a promise that will be given and found and open. Somehow we have to reconcile that God listens, answers, and meets all our needs, but according to good biblical interpretation, he doesn't necessarily give us anything and everything we ask for, even though we're told in this passage to keep asking for whatever we want. Feel the tension? So how in the world do these different messages and signals get woven together? How do they fit? How can they all be true at the same time? Well, I'm I'm glad you asked. The answer's in this passage. Ready? Put your lenses on. Remember the lens and frame Jesus gives for our prayers. The sovereign, loving God, aware of our own weakness and vulnerabilities. When we pray, asking, seeking, and knocking while using this lens, we can and should still approach persistently, yet we begin to trust God's will and develop a healthy understanding of who God is and who we are. One of the commentators says this, believers must not take Jesus' words as a blank check. Prayer is not a magical way to obtain whatever we want. Requests must be in harmony with the will of God, accepting His will above ours. Jesus in the garden, persistent. Lord, if there's another way. Lord, if there's another way. Lord, if there's another way. Paul and his thorn in the flesh. I, I don't want this. I don't like this. God, take it away. Take, take it away. Abraham with Sodom and Gomorrah. If there's 50, would you, don't do this. If there's 40, don't do this. If there's 30, don't do this. Moses in the desert. I can't do this by myself. You've got to help me. You've got to help me. Okay, so you say, well, those are Bible heroes. Yeah, they're supposed to do that. That's why they're in the Bible. They they get it right. It's easy for them. So, asking for a friend. Can that really work for me? I mean, can that really work for us? I know that's how it's supposed to work, but who really does that? Is that a fair expectation from Jesus? Church family, I say yes, and I believe he gives us the answer that we can all say yes to that in verses 11 through 13. Let's look at that story. Let's look at verse 13 specifically. Let's just read that. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So let's look in this verse. We see God, the heavenly Father. And do you see the insight and wisdom Jesus is giving us? The lens? Who's coming with persistence, shamelessness, trust, and confidence? It's the requester. Look back up in the story. Who is it? It's the one that's asking for a fish and an egg. It's a son. It's his child. Do you see it? A child can. 
and does do that. Listen to what Tim Keller says. Only children, on the one hand, have the impertinence and audacity to continually tug on a father's sleeve, and on the other hand are able to do it with so much trust, not expecting to understand everything he does. Children believe, think, and act that way. And that's the identity that Jesus is teaching in this whole passage. It all goes together. And he's saying, if you think like that, if you understand that you're a child of God, all this stuff fits together. Persistence, grace, God's will, all of it begins to fit together. Identity. Even more so, this is how brilliant Jesus is. Remember the, te- the, the verse back in, in verse 1? Lord, teach us to pray. You remember what else they said? We know John's disciples and how they prayed. But listen to what Jesus is doing. He knows that when they say, we know John's disciples and how they prayed, teach us to pray. What they're doing is they're beginning to formulate and work out their own identity. They're saying, teach us to pray because we want to know what it looks like and feels like to be your disciple. They're wrestling with their identity. And that's the key. That's what Jesus teaches at the, at the end for prayer for persistence. If you do that in the framework of your identity, you're there. So Jesus teaches them how to pray while helping them form and understand their identity as children of God. That's why he says in verse 13, our Heavenly Father answers His children by giving them the Holy Spirit. The greatest gift. It's Himself. It's the Holy Spirit, listen, watch this, it's the Holy Spirit that makes us children of God when we're saved through adoption, as the Bible says, it is the Spirit of God that works in us continuing to remind and encourage us in our identity as children of God. Okay? I'm not making this up. Let's look at Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Now we call him Abba Father. Sounds like the model prayer, doesn't it? For his spirit joins with our spirit, watch, to affirm that we are God's children. As God's children, we don't check our brains at the door. We don't stop learning or thinking, discerning, testing, and maturing in our faith. But gosh, we don't need to grow up where we can't think and behave like a child. When we... We understand and embrace our identity as children of God, then asking, seeking, and knocking with both shameless persistence and trust is not only possible, it's natural. I want to say that again. When we understand and embrace our identity as children of God, asking, seeking, and knocking with both shameless persistence and trust is not only possible, it's natural. So what does that look like? What would it look like on earth? What what would it look like to have that kind of persistence, but yet do it in a way that glorifies, to do it in a way that's praising, to do it in a way that's tender? Well, I want you to see. I want you to see it. Let's look at the screens. Daddy, hey daddy, daddy, give me daddy, so daddy, 
God, our Heavenly Father, desires most to meet our deepest needs. Because part of what's happening when we pray like God's children is that what we're really asking and seeking and knocking for is to be heard, known, and satisfied in our relationship with Him, regardless of what He does or doesn't do, what He gives us or doesn't give us. And the Bible promises us that as God answers, giving us His Spirit along with the many other good gifts He's willed, and as His children filled with the Spirit, we can be content, joyful, and satisfied. Anyone want to think and feel and have faith like that when you pray? Me too. Holy Spirit, shape us to act and think and trust like children of God. Amen? Let's pray. So Father, you were at work. Holy Spirit, remind us who we are. Remind us that we're children of God. Give us persistence. Give us trust. Give us courage. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for a way to talk to you, to hear you, to be near you. Thank you for a way to be satisfied in you through prayer. So I pray, Lord, you shape and mold us to be more like Jesus, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.